So today we get to talk about what is probably one of my most, I think one of my most favorite things to talk about and probably I think part of the revolution in leadership that God is doing on the face of the earth right now. But it's not like flashy or like, I don't know, I don't know that you can pack out rooms with a message like this. It's on mutual submission. Right? <laughs> on mutual submission. But if we want to be a spirit-filled people, I have found that the, the lower we're willing to go and mutually submit to one another, the more Jesus gets lifted up among a group of people and we see him work. As a matter of fact, we're going to see in the text that when Paul writes this letter to the ancient church in the city of Ephesus, a church, by the way, that was birthed in extraordinary miracles, even by the standards of the early church. Every city the apostles went to, miracles happened. But in Ephesus, the word extraordinary is used, even in the New Testament, because of the amount of miracles, because of the kinds of miracles. This was a church literally birthed in the miraculous activity of God in a city, right? By the way, it wasn't just miracles. It was also intense suffering. It was also a place where suffering broke out right away, right? But Paul writes to them some of the deepest, richest, most mystical theology in all of the New Testament, right? Um, But then he gets into these practical things that flow out of this gospel that he's held out to them. And watch how he connects the work and activity of the Holy Spirit to this concept of mutual submission. So this whole section is great. Ephesians 5 is a wonderful chapter. But let's just read verses 18 through 21, right? Okay. Oh, I have this. Oh, someone's doing it for me, though. But guys, look. (laughs) We've never had this in the Gospel tab all these years. Okay. All right. <laughs> listen, listen. We're we're planning a we're planning a church on the other side of the city, and as as part of that, um, we have a, a church that closed down in our denomination, and we've inherited that building, right? And um, and it's interesting because the church planners there, Wes and Sarah, are planting a community center. They are, and this is their line, I love it. They say, we're planning a community center in the church building and the church in our home, right? Because they live down the street. And so it's just really cool what's happening. But so many people have approached me about this church plant. None of y'all, because you know. But other people keep approaching me about this church plant. This church building doesn't have any parking lot. It's in a historic neighborhood, a neighborhood that's changing demographics. There's immigrants moving in, and there's no parking lot. And guys, we have been so conditioned by logic that is other than Jesus that we think like we have to have parking lots to have a move of God, right? And so, so many people have come to me and been like, well, how's that church plant going to work? There's no parking lot. If I told you all the times, anyway, I got on to that because we didn't even have this. You know what I mean? <laughs> and God keeps moving. I haven't had this for 15 years. This is my first sermon preaching with one of these in my hands. And somehow it's been okay, all right? God will make it work, all right? <laughs> Promise, all right? Okay, verse 18. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord always giving thanks to God the Father for everything 
in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in many of your Bibles, verse 21 is included in a different section. And, you know, in the original Greek, there's no sections like this. As a matter of fact, there's no punctuation. And ancient Greek, Koine Greek, is all capital, right? So thank God for biblical scholars who not only translated this into English, but made it easier for English people to read, right? And added punctuation and stuff. Like, we need that. But we do have to pay attention to it because the sections didn't come from the Holy Spirit, right? It came from translators. And it's not wrong that they did this, but they put 21 into the next section. But in your mind, I want you to keep 21 in with the verses that we just read. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now let's just break this down a little bit. Verse 18, do not get drunk on wine which leads to debauchery. Don't, don't be so filled with alcohol or some other substance that you lose self-control and it leads to debauchery, a category of all kinds of reckless sin. Right? How many lives have been hurt by that kind of thing? Right? Um, it's just what happens when we give our will over to a substance. But Paul here is not just telling us, it's just not a command not to get drunk, you know, which is sin, it's not a command not to just not to get drunk. He's drawing a parallel here. Don't be drunk on wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a redemptive picture here, right? Um, a contrast with the destruction that alcohol can bring into the life of a person. The contrast is that we can be filled not with alcohol, right, but with the Holy Spirit, right? And that the Spirit of God, as He possesses more and more of our lives, and that really is what it is to be filled with the Spirit of God. We believe that to be filled with the Spirit is something that happens after you've received salvation in Jesus. And it's something that that ought to happen in our lives at least once after we've received salvation. But it can happen again and again and again too. That we are, that more and more of our lives is possessed by the Spirit of God. Right? And that we are filled with what? His words, his influence, his power, right? His love. It is the Spirit of God who activates in us the love of the Father. So that what's influencing my actions, my words, my thoughts, it's it's not that I don't have a will anymore. Of course I have a will. Of course I can make choices. It's just that... The Spirit of God, His influence fills me more and more. More and more of my life is filled by Him so that my words, thoughts, and actions, right, begin to reflect more and more. The character of God, this is why Paul talks in Galatians about the fruit of the Spirit, right? If the influence of alcohol, as it goes further and further and further, is debauchery, well then, the influence of the Spirit of God, as it goes further and further and further in my life, is love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and oddly enough, it's a paradox, self-control. That somehow to be drunk with the Spirit of God is also to discover my own will in its truest sense. Because my will is is most alive when it is submitted to God's will. Right? That's how I was created. So self-control doesn't mean I'm king of my own life. It means that my will is submitted to Him, right? That He's King, right? 
And I make that choice, right, to submit my will to him. It's interesting, under the influence of the Spirit of God, Paul goes into this thing about worship and thanksgiving, which we just experienced. Speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. So I, I think I said this to the other campus when we were reading out of Colossians. Maybe it was said down here too when Kiara was preaching. But notice how all of this happened even today, right? So there's psalms. Some of the, the music that we sing or sometimes we read Scripture in our services are from, are from the Scriptures, right? Some of the worship that we offer back to God are the words of the Bible, right, that make its way into our music or that we sometimes recite back and forth together into our gatherings, right? Those are psalms. Hymns, meaning known songs, songs that are common to the Christian community in a certain place and time, and we know those songs, right? But then spiritual songs, right? Songs from the Spirit, he says here. And that's more of like the spontaneous prophetic stuff that happens among us. So some of the stuff that we sang today, as Jake would say, was off the page, right? It's songs that God is giving to us in the moment that we offer up back to God. This is Paul's vision of what it looks like when Christians get together and begin to give thanks to God. Now notice that in this place of the spirits of God, the Spirit's influence in my life, which influences my thoughts, words, and actions to the point now that I begin to offer thanksgiving back to Him. See, He influences us and we give back to Him what the Spirit is, is giving to us, right? That in that context, Paul now gives a command. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's a very interesting place to put this command. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into this, but this is also the header for our next section in the book of Ephesians in this letter. Because then he talks about what submission looks like between wives and husbands, what submission looks like between children and children and parents, children's children and parents. Um, and then what submission looks like in this context between slaves and masters. Now, here's what I want to point out. The next chapter, the, the next like, uh, you know, the end of chapter five, beginning of chapter six, honestly, these are some of the, some of the, for some people, the hardest verses in the New Testament because there's all this submission language. And especially for Americans, we have big problems with this, right? It's like, wait a second, we just celebrated July 4th. Right? It's like we submit to nobody, right? Like that's that's like how how we think of ourselves, right? Like we define freedom as being free of submission. Right? But it's interesting, Paul commands all this submission. Now I want to point out, because there's this there's a paradox in societies where freedom is defined as no submission, what ends up happening is it's every person for themselves, so it's whoever has the most power, whoever has the most money. Cultures like that, societies like that will be rife with injustice, will be filled with oppression, right? Because that definition of freedom doesn't work. It turns back in on itself, right? So there's a paradox that sometimes the verses that follow about wives and husbands and slaves and masters and all this stuff has actually been interpreted by, by pastors, typically male pastors, who would stand in front of you in a setting like this, who would interpret those verses to reinforce some kind of hierarchy among the believers, right? To say that only men can speak and lead, right? Those, those kinds of things. 
Now, here's what's interesting about that. I won't spend too long on this, but just so you know like how, how I look at these verses. All of the passages in the New Testament that have to do with relationships with slaves and masters, and one of them is here at the beginning of chapter 6. Um, we, as Americans, tend... I, I don't know what we do with those verses because of our own nation's history and all that stuff. We tend to, like, overlook it, right? But I want to suggest to you that in American history... The Christian abolitionists, right, who for years and years and years fought against slavery. And American slavery was actually way, this kind of slavery was bad. And I think God, like, intended to upend it. American slavery was even worse for many reasons. American chattel slavery was honestly one of the worst manifestations of slavery that has ever happened. Right? These slaves could at, at least earn their freedom. Right? That was taken away for generations and generations in American history. Um, But American Christian abolitionists who looked at these passages about slavery said, no, it's wrong for biblical interpreters. And you have to remember, there were people interpreting the Bible in the days of the Civil War. There were people interpreting the Bible on both sides of this issue, right? And they said, people who look at these and say the Bible is endorsing slavery are radically misinterpreting the text. Why? Because they said, you can't read these verses about slave and master and miss what Paul said in verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. They're saying what Paul is doing is he's being a missionary. Paul Paul wasn't a military leader. He wasn't a politician. He was a missionary. And what he did is he came into a culture that had these hierarchies, that had these things between people. And what did he do? He offered the gospel to that particular cultural context, a gospel of love. And we know from Paul, especially uh, because of his letter to Philemon later on in the New Testament, we know that Paul, what he intended was to insert love into the relationship between slave and master. And he knew that if that command were followed seriously, that you insert love between the relationship of slave and master, and now what's happening is mutual submission. Would slave owners be able to keep their slaves under those conditions? No. Paul is seeding revolution in the gospel, right? As he holds this out by seeding love. That's telling for those of us who are involved in justice movements, by the way, because we still tend to think that justice, MLK got this, but not everyone does. We tend to think that justice will be accomplished the angrier that we get. Right? Paul knew that love was the strongest thing we have. Right? It's the one thing the devil can't do. Come on. It's the one thing that empire does, knows nothing about. Right? And so if you insert love into the relationship of master and slave, he knew that eventually this would result in the release of slaves. And we actually know this was the case in Christian history, so much so that just a generation later, Christians are writing to each other. We have it in the historical record. Christians were not only releasing their slaves, but wealthy Christians were selling themselves into slavery to see other people be released. Seeding love into it had totally reversed these relationships, right? So the abolitionists in American history had it right. They smelled out, uh, they sniffed out a false interpretation of what Paul was saying here. Now, this is not what I'm preaching on today. But listen, 
if that's true for the slavery passages, it has to be true for the gender passages that are always near it. Right? When Paul addresses slave and master, he's almost always addressing male and female. Right next to it. So why would we interpret one one way and the other another way? Right? And this is why, friends, some of us, even though there's plenty to be angry about, there's not one preaching on today, let me just say this. There's plenty to be angry about in the church, about the way the church has related to its women. But friends, the most revolutionary thing that we do is see love into our relationships between male and female. In one generation, this whole institution was turned upside down of slavery, right? What if in one generation... Right? By seeding love in our relationships between male and female, which involves mutual submission, we revolutionize the church and release a whole new generation of women right, to mission and leadership. Come on. Come on. Isn't that exciting to you? This is me. All right. All right. It's okay for you to clap for that. Okay. Right back. Yeah. That's right. That's right. Come on. Okay. Now, I got ahead of myself, but all of that comes out of this command to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. See, history shows that all throughout history, we see that when one oppressed group gains power, that often oppression just recycles in a new way. Number one, groups that are oppressing, they don't like to give up power, so it doesn't happen very often. But every group does lose its power eventually. No no group in human history has held on to its power for forever, right? So eventually, that power is lost, and then when new groups have power, it's used to lord over again. This is the cycle of human history, right? But Paul here gives a new command. Jesus said, a new command I give you. We read it a few weeks ago, to love one another. An application of that is that we would submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Notice the sequence. Oh, boom. Notice the sequence. That we're filled <laughs> that we're filled with the Holy Spirit. He influences our will so that all of a sudden I don't have to control you. Right? My identity, my security is not found in me lording my will over you. See, that's actually a person who does that, they they actually they, they have an identity issue with Jesus. Right? Because they're still trying to extract something from you. Or extract something from me that they need. Right? But the will that's being influenced by the Spirit of God no longer... It would be wonderful if you were in a relationship with me. It would be wonderful if you followed me. It would be wonderful. But if you did, I'm cool. Right? That's what identity in Jesus creates. Right? Is this open-handedness. This gentleness. Right? So the Spirit of God is filling our hearts. We are worshiping Jesus. We're filled with reverence for Jesus. Psalms, hymns, songs of the Spirit. And out of reverence for Him, His goodness, which has filled my identity so much so that now I don't need to control you. I can be gentle in my words and actions towards you. means that now it opens up a new possibility in human relationships. And that new possibility is that I would submit to you and that you would submit to me. That we could submit to, well, who's in charge? Jesus. <laughs> well, who gets to say what we did? The Holy Spirit. I switched it up on you. You said Jesus again. It's right. <laughs> <laughs> it's right, though. Three in one. Trinity, good theology. All right. Right? 
somehow it's our mutual submission to one another that actually opens up new possibilities for the Spirit of God. Now listen, I don't know that on this side of glory we will ever experience this perfectly. I still, I still reach for control when I'm scared. You do too. I, I still try to get my way when I'm sure I'm right. You know, I think you do too. But, but we get a taste of heaven. What heaven will be like. We're no, this is why we love these worship environments sometimes. Because just for a minute, something aligns in us that's like, no one's in charge, at least for this minute, besides Jesus. Right? And friends, that is what heaven will be like. Amen. No one will be in charge except for him. See, the whole American way of thinking, where we have representatives and checks and balances, it's a a smart system in many ways when it's working, right? But it's really meant to acknowledge each other's sin. It's really meant to acknowledge the ways that we try to lord it over one another. The best form of government is to have a, a, a king who is perfectly, in love with the people that he is serving. Right? And that is Jesus. We have that king. So heaven won't be a democracy. Right? Amen. There won't be a need for it. Right? Because we'll have a perfect king whose heart and attention toward us is always love. Right? Always in our best interest. Always. Right? We will live under that kind of government someday. Right? But we get a taste of that here on earth. When in our conversations, in our leadership, in our worship, but just for a minute, no one is in charge except for Jesus. Now, we don't do it perfectly. Even the structures that we have to build, you know, even here at the tab, and this isn't wrong, we see it in the New Testament, but you know, we select elders and we select deacons and we select you know, people to lead over us and we have pastors and all that stuff. Even some of that is some acknowledgement of our weakness. We've made it something of strength. Right? Something to be said. It's actually, in many ways, an acknowledgement of our weakness. Right? Our need for human leaders. You see, it's in Israel's history. Give us a king. You know, like other people. It's actually, God relents because he knows humans are weak. Right? And so that's why he relents to human leadership. Right? Again and again. But the future is just Jesus' leadership. Right? And in little ways, we get to experience that here on earth. I'm going to close with this. Um... I, I got to experience this. I kept saying this. So I'm, I'm sorry. Some of the summer staff that was with me this week is going to be so on repeat. But let me tell you a little bit about that exercise that we did where we got sent out. And then I'm going to close. I've already been up here too long. Um, listen. We do this exercise with this $20 bill. Split them into groups. Give $20 bills. And then here's what we do. And to me, it's such a practice of what Paul means when he says to submit to one another. I hope this like can clarify something. This is, this is what we do. All the years we've done this exercise. It's one of my favorite things to do. We'll, first of all, focus our attention on Jesus and begin to worship him. It's what Paul says here. Psalms, hymns. You know, we didn't sing this week when we did that. Just with our words, we began to offer up thanksgiving to the Lord in the groups that we had. Then we took some time to listen. Jesus, what are you speaking to us? Right? It's what Paul says in Colossians when he uses the same language, psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. He says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly. In that environment, Jesus begins to speak. Right? So his groups began to speak, and they're writing stuff down. And listen, do they know if it's from God? No. 
And if people act like they're sure that they're sure that they're sure, you should just always have a you should just always have a question mark in the back of your mind. In my opinion, realize that God does use people who are overconfident. Like He really does, you know. But you should always have a question mark in the back of your mind because none of us are really sure. What a mystery it is to hear the voice of Jesus, right? But they're writing stuff down, and I would tell them, you, you don't have to worry about like if this word that you wrote down is from Jesus or, or not. Why? Because you're going to bring it out into submission into the community of people that God has given you today, which is this little team of people. You're going to bring it out to them. You're going to say, I heard this. I wrote this down. Maybe it's from Jesus. Maybe it's not. What do you think? So this is where, hasn't Steve led us so well in the Gospel Town in developing a, a culture of prophecy that is also a culture of humility? Right? Because this is where prophetic cultures go wrong when everyone's sure of stuff they're not sure about. Right? <laughs> but it's better to like bring it out and be like, I don't know if this is from God or not. What do you think? Right? And opening up the space. And then they would have a conversation. Here's what I told the groups. When there's four or five people in the circle discerning the voice of Jesus that way, and everybody's mutually submitting. Because we love to spiritualize and have an excuse to not submit to one another. No, I know God told me. No, God made me the leader of this. So I can for sure tell you what to do, right? Like, we have a way to spiritualize things that aren't mutual submission. I said, you might think, you may have had an open vision. I told you, you may have had an open vision. You may have had an open vision (laughs) and thought it was from God. But bring it out into that community of people. Submit it. But what if the rest of the group doesn't agree? Listen, this is how mutual submission works. When we don't make it about our egos, even when we think it's from God, this is so powerful to me. When we don't make it about our egos, well, I had, I had this vision, I heard this word, I think it's from God. Do the other three of you want to do this thing? No, we're not feeling it. <laughs> when you mutually submit, you know what happens? Everyone's ego gets suppressed. And Jesus said that his spirit is like a wind. We don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And friends, when there isn't ego in the group, the invisible wind of God can blow through that group of people and somehow sovereignly get them to exactly where they need to be on mission. See, we think it's about hearing God perfectly and then lording that over someone else. We build ministry cultures around us. We, we lead our families in this way. We, and, and, and it's especially toxic in the church because we always have spiritual justifications for why I should lord my thing over your thing. Right? But I'm telling you that even when you're sure you've heard from God, even when you're sure it's right, even, and your ego gets suppressed by the Spirit of God in the place of reverence for Jesus, somehow you will end up where you're supposed to be. Somehow, God's will will get done. Somehow, it stops being about our gifting, our ability to lead or whatever. And God just begins to move groups of people. It's like when groups of, groups of people can begin to be influenced by the Spirit of God, it opens up whole new miraculous possibilities for what's possible. Right? Now, I'm only going to submit to you if Jesus is around. Because I really don't trust you to treat me well in the place of submission. 
And you, by the way, shouldn't trust me. But if we trust Jesus, right, then we can trust that he's at work in those vulnerable spaces, right? That he will protect, that he will guide, that he will, right? In those places, we can trust him out of reverence for Jesus. We submit to one another. Friends, I feel like, I'm not, I'm not really going anywhere. You guys know that, but I am transitioning out of the sleep pastoral. And these sermons, more and more for me, are feeling like, like just parting things. Like I said, I'm not really going anywhere, but they just feel like, I feel this exclamation point on them. It's like gospel tab. Because you, so many of you evidence this so well. This is something that the gospel tab. It's not perfect. I've reached for control like you have. You know, before we've all done it. But there is something of this. And our ability to experience revival in the coming years will not be surrounding how good our leadership is or how sophisticated we are or whatever. It will have to do with how much we suppress our egos around each other. And the more we do that out of reverence for Jesus, oh, gospel tag, I'll prophesy, his wind will blow you further than you ever could imagine. He will blow you to places that you couldn't have thought of. He will take you for when it's not about an ego, right? But about what the Holy Spirit of God is doing. Amen. Hey, uh, who's closing this service? Devante, come up here. I love you, so why don't you come up here? Um, I just have one. Can you guys just close your eyes? I'm going to let Devante close. But I just, I was walking out of the house this morning, and um, Isla said, Daddy, can you do that thing where I stand on your feet? And I thought, oh, that's, that's the picture for this morning. Here's what mutual submission looks like and submission to Jesus looks like. You know, she did that thing little kids love to do where she stood on my feet and I held her hands and I took the steps. Here's the thing. As adults, that starts to feel really scary because we want to control our own destiny. But she was giggling and giggling, laughing and laughing. Because for a kid, and it's, it's only, Jesus said it's only people who can become like children who will receive the kingdom, right? For kids, that's actually a lot of fun, right? So God, I, I pray that over this group, joy and submission. Joy in saying yes to you. Joy in saying we don't have to be in charge. Giggles and laughter in the places where it feels scary to give up control. Forgive us, Lord, number one, for not giving up control, but then there's this other part where we give up control and then we talk about it like it's not joyful. That's so terrible to follow Jesus. We have to keep, and there is suffering in following Jesus. But Isla was laughing today. So I pray that over this group in Jesus' name.